0: We talked a bit last week about Pixar movies, such a significant thing to bring up in the church. I was doing a little reading this week on the topic of the importance of touch, and I found something fascinating that the movie Inside Out, which is about how everyone has little people living inside their brain, one of them's anger, one of them's shame, one of them is embarrassment, whatever, actually had a scientific advisor telling them what little people live in everyone's brains. And this particular advisor, Dr. Decker Keltner, is a serious psychologist and professor of psychology and has published widely on a variety of things. And one thing that he has written on is that human touch is, quote, the foundation of human relationships. We've known this for some time. I remember when our son was born, uh, everyone's saying, make sure that you touch the child and hold him skin to skin. I was like, yeah, you don't need to tell me to hold this baby, look how wonderful he is. But we read skin to skin, parent to child, touch is the social language of our social life. The foundation of all human relationship is touch. There are four years of touch exchanged between mother and baby. In the social realm, our social awareness is profoundly Tactile. I think this is a reason why it was so difficult during the lockdowns and quarantines and things of COVID, especially for young children who are of a developmental age who, who were struggling being denied this foundation of human relationships. This is also, I think, why it's so scary to me when we're moving relationships from in person and together in all areas of life instead to being online. I don't need to be where you are. I'll just FaceTime you. We can talk that way. It isn't all that important. Well, Keltner was one of the co-authors of a study that looked at the celebratory touches of pro basketball players. You've watched the NBA, how they're always uh, touching one another in celebratory ways. He talks about fist bumps, high fives, chest bumps, leaping shoulder bumps, chest punches, head slaps, head grabs, low fives, high tens, full hugs, half hugs, and team huddles. The researchers involved discovered that teams whose players touched one another a lot did better than the teams whose players did not. And I assume there was some control in there to make sure that it wasn't that they were high-fiving because they were doing better, but (laughs) that it was the other way around. The conclusion of the paper was that touch lowers stress, builds morale, and produces triumphs. A chest bump instructs in cooperation, just as a half-hug instructs in compassion. To me, that is fascinating. Absolutely fascinating, especially when we come into a text like this one in Luke chapter 8, in which we read about a woman reaching out to touch the Lord Jesus. Now a little context for this, since this is not a book we have been studying through at present, just before all this happened, the people of the Gadarenes had been beneficiaries of Christ's ministry. He had gotten in a boat, gone over to that region. He had cast many demons out of a couple of people who had been a huge problem for the community. And the thanks that he got was that all the people together said, oh, Jesus, could you, like, leave and not be here anymore and he said okay and as we read he instructed his disciples as well he takes off his sandals essentially knocks the dust from them gets back on the boat and comes back into Galilee and there he is welcomed and welcomed with great fanfare people are excited to see him where there are those who reject Jesus there are those somewhere else who are chomping at the bit to receive him and that is where we see him heading And, of course, it's not just great fanfare. It's actually kind of Jesus mania. You've seen those videos of the Beatles being sort of grabbed and smuggled and and rushed from the venue to the limo while all the people press in. Well, this is kind of the treatment Jesus got, only he didn't have the security guys. He just had Peter with his sword going, oh, there's so many ears, there's so many ears. (laughs) And so he had a hard time even walking through the streets of Galilee. The people were pressing in. In fact, there's a word that's used here in this text. Uh, t- two very good accounts, uh, very complete accounts of this event. You can find it in Luke chapter 8 here in Mark chapter 5. In Mark 5, he talks about the crowd thronging about him. Here in Luke, we read that they pressed him. The NIV says the crowd was crushing him. Literally, the word means to choke someone. He's being choked, he's being kind of strangled by the crowd coming in all around him. And yet our text focuses on one woman in that crowd. One woman who had been horribly ill for years, but when we meet her and when Jesus meets her in the text, he is on his way to do something else. He's on his way to do a favor for a very important guy, a pillar of the community, a synagogue leader named Jairus. Jairus comes in and falls down before him and says, my, my daughter is sick. Please come into my house and heal her. And so Jesus says, I will come. On the way is when he encounters this woman. Now Jairus, again, a big shot, a role model for young Jewish boys, a man who is wealthy and successful enough that not only does he have servants in his home, but if we keep reading the text after Ryan stopped, you find that later on, this guy has pre-purchased the paid mourners package for his home in advance just in case something horrible and tragic might happen at some point he's prepared and the flow of the text here seems to place these events back in Capernaum and as does church tradition which means that Jairus this synagogue leader is probably one of those elders that we read about in Luke 7 who came to Jesus on behalf of a centurion and said "Lord." There's this Gentile, this centurion. Yes, he's not one of us, but he's one of the good ones. He's a God-fearer. He helped build our synagogue. He loves our God, and his servant whom he loves is sick. He brought that message. He knows then that Jesus was able to heal that servant from that very moment. He knows that Jesus is powerful. In chapter 4 of Luke, we see Jesus casting out a demon in Jairus' synagogue. He's seen him at work. But then suddenly things get off track because Jesus stops in his tracks. And as you heard, he turns around and says, someone, someone has touched me. On my way to heal one person, someone else has been healed. There's quite a contrast here then, and I think it's intentional, between these two people approaching Jesus for help. They couldn't be more different. Both of them fall at his feet looking for life, but that is where the similarities, and everything else about them is almost opposite. It reminds me an awful lot of John. Now, if you know the the Gospels Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call the synoptic Gospels. They're very similar. John is doing his own thing over here. And both the synoptic Gospels and John have a a situation like this. In John chapter 3 and 4, you have the story of Nicodemus, this great teacher, this famous leader in Israel, coming to Jesus, and then Jesus encountering the woman at the well. And in many ways, they are opposites as well right so he's a jew she's a gentile he's a respected man a leader and he seeks jesus out at night under cover of darkness she is a gentile woman a pariah off by herself at noonday drawing water when nobody else is doing that and jesus seeks her out nicodemus is a famous teacher we don't even ever learn her name in the text we just call her the woman at the well Striking similarity to this situation here in Luke chapter 8, where we have an unnamed woman who is the polar opposite of Jairus in almost every way. Jairus comes to Jesus publicly, seeking a cure for his daughter. This woman seeks out Jesus clandestinely, chasing a cure for herself. In a culture that's preoccupied with ceremonial cleanliness and outward piety, Jairus is known as being holy. She is unclean and has been continually, ceremonially unclean for many years, by no fault of her own. And in a patriarchal society, she's a woman, while he is a prominent man, known to the whole town. She, on the other hand, is invisible, and kind of likes it that way, or at least prefers it for obvious reasons. So it makes sense, from a, a narrative perspective, that this woman, all three times that she's mentioned in all three of the synoptic Gospels, is a subplot in the story of this important man. She, she is a complication in someone else's narrative. It's the story of Jairus' daughter being healed. Oh, and there's this other thing that happens. That's how everyone sees her and how she sees herself. She's the B-plot in some other guy's sitcom. Last week, we talked again about the credits, credits rolling. You know, when the credits come up, at first you have everybody who's named, right? You watch Indiana Jones. You guys watch Indiana Jones, right? And up comes Indiana Jones, played by Harrison Ford. And then you have, you know, Sala, played by John Rice Davies. And then you go all the way down, and then you get down into, like, henchman number two, played by whoever. Jairus would be way up near the top. This woman is way down at the bottom. That's how she sees herself, but that's not how Jesus sees her. And by that, I mean that Jesus actually sees her, even while she's trying to blend into the crowd. Now, we may not know her name, but we do know a good deal about her and her background. She has had an issue of blood for a dozen years. This is the sort of thing where you have men preaching places, men who hear female problems and go, oh, okay, I'll pray for you in general terms. Tell me no more. We do know a bit about it from this passage, Luke, the physician, makes it clear that this is beyond the ability of any physician to heal. Only Mark mentions that under the care of these many physicians, things had gone from bad to worse, whether in spite of or because of the treatments we don't know. She spent her life savings on every doctor she could find, and she, she tried every remedy, method, medication, every procedure they suggested. She said, take my money, give me some hope, but nothing helped and now her money is all gone and with it any hope of a natural cure this is a hopeless woman it's common for people to not turn to christ until they've tried practically everything else and that is the case here as well now if you read commentaries and and journal articles and things you'll find people trying to figure out exactly what was going on with her and diagnose it centuries and centuries later. Some have suggested she had a tumor or other conditions have been thrown about. It doesn't really matter. The point is, and what Luke and Mark and Matthew all want to make sure we understand, is that her last 12 years have been saddled with a condition that left her physically debilitated, socially ostracized, ceremonially defiled, and even unable to marry, if you read the Levitical Law. This is, this is an awful life she's been forced to endure. In fact, you think about, again, several weeks of having been confined to our homes when we weren't able to go out and shake hands and do all these things, and then months of not quite comfortable with it and, and holding back, and we all started going nuts and, and posting these you know, memes that were turning into Jack Nicholson from The Shining and stuff. This woman, if the ceremonial Levitical law was being strictly followed, should have been confined to her home for a dozen years. Even going out among the people was a risk. Why, though, would she come to Jesus anonymously when so many others, blind, lame, etc., would come to him and say, yeah, we're on the fringes of society, but we're throwing ourselves at your mercy. Will you heal us? And he always says, yes, I'm willing. I'll heal you. She must have heard these stories. After all, that's why the crowds are always mobbing Jesus. The stories of his mighty miracles are spreading far and wide. He's feeding 5,000. He's bringing the dead back. He's healing all sorts of people and casting out demons. But again, not only is she unclean, but by the ceremonial law, anyone she touched would also become unclean. Imagine the weight that would be on you, on your mind, on your spirit. If I touch someone I make them unclean for a time. No wonder she wanted to remain anonymous in the midst of the crowd. Not only was she undoubtedly afraid that they would recognize her and turn on her, but she could become the woman who made Jesus unclean, the great Messiah. She came and she ruined it. But the the thing she didn't know, and what she's going to find out, and what everyone who encounters Christ in the Gospels learns, is that Jesus cannot be defiled is that if Jesus touches someone defiled, he undefiles them. He touches lepers, and they become spotless and pure. He touches men and women who are full of devils, and they are delivered. His very touch drives the unclean spirits out and frees the souls that have been demonized. He touches the dead, and instead of him becoming impure and unclean for this many days until he does this many ceremonial washings, no, 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 the dead come back to life. And yet, even to this day, many people have this same fear in them. I can't can't really come to Jesus. I'm too unclean. I can't come to church. Somebody there might know my past, or even if they don't, I'll know it, and I'm going to kind of defile the place. I I can't come to the the Lord's Supper. I'll defile that. It's holy. What if I touch it, and what if I'm passing the bread, and and I, I make the whole thing? unholy or even the, the baptismal elements not only the water w- would be defiled by how sinful i am and i guess with the pastor who's standing in the water but the whole baptistry itself the whole tub would become no longer usable you'd have to have a big rededication and cast out my demons because of all my sin it's like that that great work of literary fiction um aaron what we, we read it in high school uh, the, the cat in the hat comes back remember that one when when the, there there was the, the bathtub that got the pink ring around it and everything they tried to try and clean it and get that out it just spread further and further and further and further that's the picture in this woman's mind of what might happen if she approaches Jesus and the picture in many people's minds of why well, I, I can't quite come to church yet I got to get stuff worked out got to get my life lined up I got to get that habit licked I've got to be pretty pure when I walk in those doors, right? And then maybe when I walk in, I've got to remain anonymous for a while so nobody knows I don't really belong there. No, nonsense. If I asked all the sinners to leave right now, you'd all be following me out the back of the church. And these elements, they're for sinners. They're for sinners saved by grace. The water of baptism is for sinners. We use water because you go in dirty. That's the point of the whole picture. This woman understood, though, the depths of her own uncleanness because it was reinforced by everyone around her all the time. She had a sickness which made her poor, even as it made her an outcast. And Robert Fawcett, while he is writing, especially writing on the words, she spent all she had but only grew worse, he says, this is an emblem of our natural state as fallen creatures. We are separated from God unclean. That we are in our sins, and people everywhere always continually try every possible remedy, method, procedure, whatever we can do, this philosophy, that approach, and everything we do, not only does it not help, not only does it suck us of all of our resources, but it actually leaves us all the worse. I think of Ezekiel 16, where God pictures himself as a man walking through a field and seeing there discarded a newborn infant writhing, wallowing in its blood and has compassion and picks up the infant, washes the infant and and makes it clean, loves and cares for. We need that. We need a, a healer, a miracle worker. Nothing we've ever tried could do anything but send us into further debt and leave us all the more defiled. This is needed. You you might say, Pastor Zach, this is some obvious preaching you're doing right now. Yes, we're all sinful. Yes, we all need Jesus. Yes, nothing else we could try could possibly bring about our own salvation or or do away with our sins. We already get it. Move on to something else. Do we all get it? Just read yesterday about a a recent survey earlier this year, 2022, that found that at least one-third of senior pastors in the United States believe that someone can earn a place in heaven by being a good person. That is according to the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. And you say, well, that sounds a little rinky-dink. It was started by George Barna. You may have heard of him. It's not. This is a, a legitimate survey. Also found, by the way, that a third of all senior pastors in America believe that the Holy Spirit is not a person, but rather a symbol of God's power. Reminding ourselves and one another of obvious biblical truths is the job of a minister, a church member, a leader, a teacher, lest we assume these things and they become lost. This woman, though, she knew if I just could touch, if I could touch the fringe of his garment, I will be whole. She's doing better than a third of all senior pastors. This is what I need. And listen to that language. I will be whole. That's the the notion in the Hebrew thought of of shalom, which doesn't just mean peace, like the absence of war, but means peace, wholeness, everything as it should be-ness. This is what he can bring me. This is what he brings us. How do we frame what Jesus has done for us? Do we think of it as making us whole? If not, we could take a note from this unnamed woman with the issue of blood. She probably didn't know much about Jesus. You undoubtedly know more about him than she did. But she did know he was her only hope, and she did act on that knowledge. The two people who are giving their lives back in this chapter Jairus' daughter, who is going to die, spoiler alert, by the end of the chapter and be brought back from the dead, and this woman who'd been suffering in this condition for 12 years, both have that number 12 in common. Did you think I wasn't going to bring that up? You don't know me then. Spurgeon wrote, the girl has been 12 years living and this woman 12 years dying. It's significant, I think, that he gives us that detail. In the scriptures, 12 is the number of election, 12 tribes, 12 disciples. This is is a situation in which God has foreordained his own glory through his coming into someone else's story and bringing life where there was death. This woman carries out her plan It works wonderfully. She goes and touches him. No one notices except Jesus. And of course, that's the significant part that the crowd pushing in, pressing in, choking, still he notices. For some reason, the picture I have in my mind, and I think it might be informed by paintings and or movies or something, is a picture of a woman down, way down near the ground kind of crawling through people's legs, wanting to get to the hem of his garment, which is swinging down there right near the ground, moving slowly, surreptitiously. Maybe it's from a study cam point of view, way down there by the ground with her. And I think it's a beautiful picture. There's something fitting about anyone approaching Christ in this posture of selflessness and humility on their knees, on their face. And and this woman will take that posture in a moment, but that's not how we should picture this approach. If that's a picture you had in your mind as well, wipe it clean. First of all, if she tried that, she would be trampled with all these people pressing in. That would have gone badly. Secondly, this would have drawn more attention to herself. Can you imagine you're walking along? Hey, there's Jesus. Whoa, what's this? This is not what happens here. No, this is actually not the bottom of his robe or his cloak that she's trying to touch. The word here indicates a tassel. And if you know anything about Judaism, you know that to this day, wearing tassels at the corners of one's garment is a law that that observant Jews keep. It goes back to Numbers 15. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout the generations and put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. These were a constant reminder of who God is and who we should be then as a a response to that. They're there to remind us of the law of God and not to follow our own hearts. Well, rabbis were these things in a particular way. You know there's always ways that people will wear their clothing to indicate who they are what they do uh, in many traditions clergymen today will wear a, a particular kind of collar and that kind of collar goes back to uh that time when there was frilly uh, fancy collars that people would wear and under them kind of a stiff thing that would keep it all in place and the clergy would only wear the stiff thing and that oh that's a, that's a clergyman and that just kind of stuck And a similar kind of thing happened with rabbis in this day. Their their outer robe was essentially a large square of heavy wool cloth. On each of the corners was one of these tassels. And it was worn such a way that one of the corners hung right between their shoulder blades. And there one of the tassels would be. It wasn't way down by the ground. And so it would be much easier then for someone to get in the crowd kind of close to Jesus, but not right up to him. Reach over touch the, the tassel and, and go and, and be completely confident that that person would be none the wiser. Think about that. If you had tassels hanging from your, your clothing and someone just touched one of them and then they were gone, and yet he knows. She immediately knew as well. She felt that something was different. She was healed instantly after years of painful, probably kind of abusive treatments from what we know about medical care at that time, Now she is in a moment healed. She feels it instantly. There's nothing frightening or painful or drawn out about it. She was healed in a moment. I almost said nothing invasive about it, but that would be wrong, wouldn't it? When Jesus heals us, he goes all the way, far deeper than than anyone could physically to our heart, takes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. And I think we find something fascinating in this moment. I think... And I will go to the wall on this that Jairus' faith is weaker than it looked at first. And this woman's faith is stronger. Think about this. This is probably, I think we can make a very, very clear cut biblical case. This is one of the guys who came to Jesus with the message from the centurion saying, No, 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 I don't even deserve to have you come into my home. I am a man under authority. This is what the centurion says. He says, I'm a man under authority with people who are under authority, and I tell them what to do. They do it. I say, go here. They go. They do this. They do that. If you just say the word, Jesus, I'm sure my servant will be healed. Jairus comes to Jesus and says, I need you right now to drop everything and come directly to my house in order to heal my daughter. You need to be there. I'm not taking any chances, even though he is taking a chance, because she's very sick, and it's going to take time to come get Jesus. No, 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 no. I need you to actually be there. Whereas this woman thinks, "Gone. I'm going to be healed. I know it. I'll be made whole. He won't even need to know that it has happened. But, of course, he does. He says, who touched me? The disciples here almost mock this question, because it seems so odd the answer, the obvious answer, is everyone. Everyone's touching you. Everyone's pressing in. They're choking us. They're, they're kind of squishing us, Lord. But Jesus was not talking about incidental brushes up against him or even someone bumping into him. Rather, he felt someone reach out in faith and receive healing from his very soul. And know this. Jesus was well aware of who had touched him. I'm not guessing you look in Mark chapter 5, verse 32, he looked around to see the one who had done it. And you say, what does that tell us? Well, this is one of those rare cases where looking at the Greek gives you additional insight. He wanted to see the one who had done it, and that word is in the feminine singular. He's not looking for just anybody. Somebody, somebody touched that tassel. No, he knows it's her. He's looking for her. He wants her to come forward. This is the Jesus who saw Nathanael sitting under the fig tree from miles away. He knows whom he has healed. Jesus knows if he has healed you, if he has taken your sins from your shoulders, if he has made you whole, if he has taken the curse of the sin from you, taken your old heart of stone, given you a heart of flesh, made you a new creation, he knows I remember being a little kid and going to a lot of church events. A lot of times people would be preaching. and A lot of times it would be, you know, a kind of a traveling group or something. And the guy would really stretch out the invitation. You ever been to one of those? And he would say, okay, just raise your hand. Just slip that hand up there. Lights are low. No one will see. It's all right. And then he would start saying this. Yes, I see that hand. Yes, I see that hand. Yes, I see that hand. I remember being about 10 and thinking, Who cares? If you see the hand, isn't the whole promise here that Jesus sees the hand? And if you see the hand, why don't we all see the hand so we'll all know who it is who's coming before Jesus to be healed? If you reached out to him for wholeness, to be cleansed and saved, and by the way, that is the word used here, sozo, to save. When Jesus says your faith has healed you, it has saved you. If you've reached out to him for salvation, he knows and he wants others to know. he brings up the house lights he says who was it who was just healed her healing is made complete when Jesus publicly declares her cleansed and receives her praise without that she probably would have been thought of as unclean by everyone still but no he says I have healed you your faith has made you well go in peace and when he says okay who who is it Who, who touched me I felt healing power go out of me we read something very fascinating. She, she decides the jig's up, and I'm going to come clean. She doesn't just slip away. It says, recognizing she had not remained hidden. Or I like the King James. She was not hid. She thought, she thought she was hid. She wasn't hid. And she said, okay, I'm going to approach him. She comes to him trembling on her face, which, by the way, is the right way to come before the God of the universe. And then he says to her, Daughter. Now she knows where she stands with him. Now she knows that he loves her. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Again, that's the word sozo, to save. Go in peace, Mark adds, and be free from your torment. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but when we approach him broken and empty-handed, he quells all of our fears. In that moment of encounter, she learned a lesson that many professing believers do not learn for decades. When she saw that she was not hid, she began to pour out her heart. She told him everything. She told everyone everything. You are not hid either. You may think that you can have this relationship with Jesus where you pop in once a day, tell him what he wants to hear, receive some blessings, and then he stays out of your business the rest of the time, but none of it is hidden from him. We might think we can draw out the healing, the wholeness, the power for living, the good Jesus vibes with a quick touch of the tassel, and then we're on our way while remaining lost in the crowd, but we cannot. You're not hid. Bring him your doubts. Bring him your fears. If you're angry with him, bring him that. You see that you're not hid. Don't think he doesn't know what's in your heart. And don't think he doesn't care. If we keep reading, we find that Jairus' daughter does indeed die while Jesus is healing her. So you know Jairus is thinking uncharitable thoughts about this woman, this unclean woman that just cost his daughter her life but then Jesus says, well, bring me there anyway. They arrive. The mourners are weeping. He says, the girl's asleep, not dead. Everyone laughs, which is how you know they're hired mourners. And then he goes in, takes her hand, talithakum, little girl, arise, and she sits up, healed. Healed of being dead. Our Jesus does that. In that passage, I think we learn something significant. If you think of Jairus' story as the B-plot of this woman's and not vice versa. In that moment, we recognize that we never need to feel silly praying for something in light of the fact that the guy down the street or the person next to me in the pew has something far more urgent and serious going on. Oh my goodness, you're praying for your wife who's sick and maybe on her deathbed and I'm over here just praying about my job. I feel like I'm wasting God's time. He can take care of both. He does both. Even here when he's in, uh, he's limited by having taken on a human body, he does both of these things. He never rebukes anyone for coming to him as long as they're not looking for affirmation of the flesh, but rather... For him to be at work in them. She felt unworthy because she was unworthy. So was Jairus. So am I. So are you. As we come to the Lord's table in a moment, undoubtedly through your mind will come all of the sins that you've committed since we last took this holy meal. And you'll think, I'm undeserving. And you are. Absolutely. And yet despite this, he calls us to come boldly before his throne of grace. And to come to his own table to eat with him. To be fed of him. And we talk about this in in the preface to communion about how we are warned in the scriptures against taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. But recognize that doesn't mean as unworthy people. That is what we will do. We will take the Lord's Supper as unworthy people made worthy by Christ himself. If indeed we have reached out and truly had contact with Jesus and not just been part of the crowd. Augustine, when preaching on this verse, spoke of multitudes coming close to him in the means of grace. Meaning the scriptures, the bread and the cup, the waters of baptism, but to no purpose. Because they are then only sucked in by the crowd. They were trying to have a quick moment. Touch the tassel, move on, no real encounter. And when he says, Who touched me? What does the crowd do? We read here that they all denied it. It well, wasn't me. No, I didn't. I, no, absolutely not. I'm just here if there's free bread later. The crowd came and went, but nothing came of it. We only read any further about those who truly encountered him, who made real contact with him. You know, people press in around Jesus today without really touching him. Many go under the water of baptism without actually being buried in Christ and raised with him or washed of their sins. Many eat the bread and drink of the cup without ever actually eating his flesh and drinking his blood and being fed. Many might brush against him or jostle him in the street, but no power goes out of him and into them. Mere proximity to Jesus does nothing for you. And I know a lot of people find comfort in the fact that I was raised in the church. I know all that stuff. I went to Sunday school. I got it. That's covered. Proximity to Jesus does nothing for you if you do not reach out and touch him and receive from him healing power. Judas was close to him. Closer than you and I would ever be, but there he was still betraying him. One of my favorite quotes, and I say favorite meaning that it cuts to the quick every time I think of it, is from St. Francis de Salle, that there is nothing more dangerous than often touching the outside of a holy things. This is a particular concern, I think, for pastors and those who are uh, leaders in the church, where It's business, right? We gather together and we talk about, oh, this is how the gutter replacement is going and this and that and that. It's all the outside of the holy things and it can feel like, all right, we've covered that. We've pressed in around Jesus. We've been in his presence, but have we received his power? When you go to him in prayer, are you looking to have a true encounter with the God of the universe or to say some rote words and check a box so that you've done it? When you open the scriptures, same question. Are you expecting, even maybe if you're in a text like the one we had last week, in Ezra chapter 2, 70 verses of names after names on names on names, am I expecting to encounter Jesus in these supernatural words, the word of God and the words of men? Or is this just an exercise to help me focus or get ready for my day? When you come to the Lord's Supper, what are you expecting? Are you expecting to encounter him? Or is it just, oh yeah, it's the first of the month. I guess the mortgage is due this week. When you hear preaching, are you expecting to be able to... I thought, saw a guy, a buddy of mine, Drew Dick, yesterday on Twitter. Some of his deepest thoughts were done during boring preaching. I thought, ah, uh, yeah, that's true. Me too. Sometimes it's my own boring preaching. And yet, are we expecting to be bored by encountering God in his word? Or are we expecting to encounter him through his ordained means to at the very least touch his garment? But more than that, to throw yourself into his arms and be comforted and healed and encouraged and equipped. Basketball players have got to do the shoulder bumps, the half hugs. I, don't know, I, think, I think hitting someone in the head should not count as uh, good contact, but there it was. We in the church need to have the same thing. We need to encounter the Lord Jesus and one another. We need to sing, Bless Be the tie and hold hands across the aisle. We need to remember that this is where our faith meets God's perfect holiness, right at the place where Jesus reaches out, takes our leprous, unclean, defiled hand, and makes us perfectly pure and righteous. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a beautiful passage in which this woman's story is so often lost in the midst of a man's bigger story, Lord, may we remember that you are at work in everyone's story. And when we walk down the street, may we never look at some people as important, some of them as less so, some people as worthy of our time, others as not so much. Lord, may we remember that Jesus looked at the people and was moved with compassion. When people were hurting, when people were angry, when people lashed out, still he was there loving them, forgiving them, offering them everlasting life. Lord, we pray that we would encounter you and encounter you often. That we would receive your healing power and receive it often. And that we would be conduits of that grace and love and mercy that you've shown us. That we would extend it to others. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.